You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for intellectually curious adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now, let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak, as she sits down for a conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, known to most of us as Ollie. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Milan Raban. Dr. Raban was born in Prague, but fled communist Czechoslovakia as a teenager and pursued his college education in the United States, earning a Ph.D. from Michigan State. He was a professor of comparative and international politics at the University of North Texas for four decades and has closely followed the events in East Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. He has been promoting international education, both through student study programs abroad and as a study leader for the Smithsonian, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and other national institutions. His research has primarily focused on ethnicity and nationalism in East and Central Europe and the USSR. Fortunately for us, Dr. Raban is also a faculty member for OLLI. He has taught a variety of very interesting classes based on his experiences and expertise. The classes have included the years of World War II and the aftermath in Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia, One Boy's Experience, as well as The Soviet Empire Died Laughing. I love that title and I can't wait to talk about that. And Czechoslovakia's place in Central Europe. This semester, Dr. Raban is teaching Democracy in East Central Europe Under Siege. Welcome, Dr. Raban. You have such a fascinating background. I hardly know where to begin, but I suppose the best place to start is back when you were a boy. Yes, I was a boy. <laughs> Long ago, I barely remember. You taught a class on your memories of World War II when the Nazis occupied Czechoslovakia on March 15. 1939. Actually, the date has major significance in my awareness of World War II because it was on this very day, 80 years ago, that in this small town where we were living in Sedlčany, central Bohemia, suddenly the town city square was filled with military material. Nazis had invaded the rest of the country. And there were all these curious vehicles and light armor, not heavy tanks or anything like that, but, you know, machine guns and light artillery pieces. And that's how I suddenly realized something major was afoot. And it began a life shaped very much by war and its many winds that come unexpectedly from various directions. You must have been very frightened. I can't imagine what that must have been like for a child. Well, it was frightening. Of course, on one hand, a little boy was interested in those BMW (laughs) motorcycles with sidecars you see in World War II movies. But at the same time, I did not fully appreciate the extent of stress it meant for my parents 
because they were much more conscious of what was happening, having had memories of World War One, and so World Two started. Didn't stop right there because this small town, the Nazis decided to evacuate over few short years. The entire region of evacuate about 30,000 people ultimately had to leave because the Nazis decided to make it a major military base for SS and special troops being trained Wehrmacht. We were one of the first families tossed out, so this wind blew me from this home in Sedlčany to a little place I never heard of, of course, and Sobotka, where I spent 10 years of my years in Czechoslovakia. How far away was that from your home village? From the town of Sedlčany? Yes. About 60 miles or so, not much, but Sobotka itself was a very attractive place, but suddenly there were so many people being pushed around by shifts in population, ethnic cleansing and so forth going on, so that housing was virtually unobtainable. And we ended up living in one room in this old 18th century farmhouse with a very welcoming family, but luckily ended up with a duplex that worked quite well. But it happened so quickly, and that's a town, Sobotka, where I began my school that very fall, autumn of 1939. So you were around six years old, six maybe? Six years old. This happened between five and a half. And so it just seemed to be the theme of my life, all these unexpected, surprising twists that I'm sure happened to many people, but they certainly affected my life, the life of my family. And the school itself, of course, in wartime was a very special experience because it meant kind of Nazi oppression. It was not horribly direct in Sobotka because the elementary school I was attending did not seem to have, as I recall, many changes in teaching personnel. They had to play a certain role with respect to the dominance of the Nazis and worship of Hitler and what have you. But school was interesting and also suffered by what was going on. For example, there came a point where we did not have enough paper to write, so we wrote very tiny handwriting. We had to use like a 19th century technology, a slate. We used slate, scratchy. I hated the sound. There were so many elements to that experience, but it was more the context around it, the fear that came through my father's concern, picking up the newspaper and there would be a long list of people executed the night before. And he would send me to the newsstand where they had these poorly produced cheap newspapers with bold print indicating who happened to be executed. It was especially bad in 1942. So I was only six, seven at that time, but I could pick up on on that. So they were executing anyone who they perceived was a threat? 
There was one specific event that triggered this wave of executions. It had to do with the only truly major assassination that succeeded of a top Nazi leader. The highest Nazi leader, Reinhard Heydrich, was assassinated by a team of Czech military parachuted into the country in an operation called Anthropoid, and they succeeded in this mission. But in retaliation, Hitler demanded immediately the execution of 10,000 Czechs. It didn't fulfill. Even some Nazis opposed it because they needed the Czech labor force for war production. I think one reason that saved us from total annihilation was the fact that the Germans needed the Czechs, as I say, to help to produce all those tanks and artillery pieces and what have you, and also contributing some amount of foodstuffs. And so the executions were limited to some low thousands at that time, not 10,000. But there were other instances of people occasionally being picked to be an example of somebody who was not behaving in the expected way. For example, a farmer who was forced to turn everything to the Nazi system, who would try to hold back, let's say, a couple sacks of wheat. And if he were found out, one time coming from school, I, there was actually a trial held in Sobotka. There was a trial, and there was obviously a charade. And he, he was, this farmer was sentenced to death. And I happened to walk on the street just as he was outside of the building bidding his family oh goodbye. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry you had to see that yeah. as a child. That must have it, been difficult. It made me, one of the things that particular event helped with is my attitude about the death penalty example. I can see why. So there were so many experiences just trying to make sense of what was happening in our environment. So we listened to the BBC radio. It was secret. Technically, one could be sentenced to death for listening to outside stations. The signal would be very inadequate sometimes. Just the Nazis tried to jam many of these programs, BBC Voice of America, and at 9 p.m., my father's friend, lawyer, would come into our house and I would sit there with Atlas in hand, learning geography <laughs> by listening to where the action was in Singapore or wherever, El Alamein and so forth, and places in Russia, Soviet Union, I should say. And I still recall vividly the musical theme at 9 p.m., La Voce di Londra, was the Italian language program just preceding the Czech program, Vola, Londine, and playing the Jeremiah Clark trumpet voluntary. It's just amazing how many of these memories linger in so many forms. One of the traditional uh, historic air shows like B-17 or B-25, I can still uh, the sound of those engines after all these decades, is still very unique because they were overhead in 1943, 1944. What was your father's occupation? My father's occupation was very minimal. He was a newspaper man. 
he was writing and he was active in a political party, agrarian party, which was the dominant party in interwar Czechoslovakia. But he had kind of a meaningless administrative job during the war, just keeping low profile. And he'd had to do something inane with farm machinery. I don't even remember the details, but it was nothing that constituted collaboration or anything like that. What was it like when the liberation forces arrived? Those were some of the most hectic and compelling months of war for us. First, there were tens of thousands of civilian refugees, German ethnics, being driven from the east ahead of the oncoming Soviet army. So there were all these carts, elderly women, men, children, suitcases on carts, and staying at my school, for example, and any other place where they could put their heads down. It was a very tragic experience to see so many And the second group that came through were POWs, not American, but Commonwealth countries. That means New Zealand, uh, South Africa, England, Canada, and so forth. And they were being marched westward towards the American, British armies, you know, because Mm -hmm. they were, I guess, deemed more safe in the long run. Those encounters were very meaningful to me because my father and a doctor, Kafka, helped with some of these people to actually escape from that forced march. There were some interesting rocky formations close to Sobotka where there were a few caves and, for example, four South African POWs stayed in one of the caves and they were taken care of by people from town. I did not learn until later that like Dr. Kafka, his wife actually, also a physician, she performed appendix surgery, appendectomy, on one of those people on the kitchen table in her home because, you know, if the Nazis were to find out, it would be the end. So lots of things of that nature happened. Could spend more time discussing all those things. But then the actual arrival of the Soviet troops, Red Army, this was fairly late because the central part of Czechoslovakia was the last part to be occupied by the victorious, taken, I should say, by the victorious armies. So some of the shooting, which was not very extensive at that point, occurred like May 9th although history tells us the war is over, well, I can tell you it was not quite over. Not for you. Not completely, because there were, for example, some foolish young people who tried to stop the fleeing Nazi soldiers on the highway and tragically tried to stop them, which made no sense. And so the Germans took 11 of these 20-year-old plus minus and shot them right there and then. So little incidents, not such little tragic incidents happened. Then eventually the Soviet army actually arrived. There was no shooting at that point. They had these nice snazzy looking trucks that this boy really thought were pretty nifty. 
And so I dragged my father to the highway to look at these trucks, and it was a long column of U.S.-made trucks. U.S. You know, managed to give billions of dollars of military material assistance to the Soviet Union in World War II. And these were, I believe they were the Dodges. And that was one experience. The soldiers were happy. Many inebriated. One threatened to shoot my mother for not producing alcohol. Luckily, an officer stepped in. And there were so many things. Stupid boys doing stupid things. You know, I was, for example, carrying hand grenades oh my found in the word. ditches. The Germans were abandoning all this military equipment. So you go into a ditch and there, there is a belt of machine gun bullets and hand grenades and what have you. Anyway, there are more details about all that. But uh, they were friendly. They were happy that they survived that horrible conflict. On the square, people dancing and showing joy. We didn't, of course. And they, they were almost cute and silly in that, like with those grenades I mentioned, I had a belt of five Nazi hand grenades, those with a stick, mm-hmm. and I'm carrying five. And that Soviet soldier ran away from me. and <laughs> But he went somewhere and got a pyrotechnician of his unit to come and take them and said, come on over and took me to a nearby brick quarry where they were brick factory. And he just lobbed them into the quarry, exploding just sort of for his own entertainment and, and yours. for mine, just told me <laughs> to keep my head down. Well, goody, I'm glad he took them away from you anyway. The Czech area was liberated by primarily Soviet troops, yes. They politically desired to control Prague, so that was the reality. But the western part, kind of a big sliver of the country stretching from Pilsen to Budweiser, Pilsen to Budjovice, a very interesting line, uh, judging from that name, <laughs> uh, was liberated by Patton's Third Army. Oh. So during the summer of 1945, traveled on these decrepit trestles, just improvised with uh, railroad ties and so forth, inching along so it wouldn't fall through to some creek. Uh, anyway, visited this area and Americans were so helpful. I did notice that they seemed to be looking rather appreciatively at my pretty and Emma, <laughs> whom I considered quite pretty too, I might add, uh, they would give us gasoline to run some farm equipment. And I remember taking a couple canisters driven in a Jeep to back to the village of my grandfather's. And one man in this place where many soldiers were stationed gave me his Boy Scout knife which I'm sure had a meaning to him, but he gave me that knife and, of course, a big share of chocolate. The Soviets were generally fine, unlike in Germany and other occupied places. They were put on notice to behave better, Uh, no no systematic raping and so forth. But uh, it was a contrast, yet, you know, by agreement... They had to leave by December 
1945. So these would be the Soviets or all the liberation the, forces? Presumably, mostly on both sides, mm. they were supposed to pull back. Mm -hmm. But uh, needless to say, the Soviets left quite a bit of presence in various ways to solidify their control. When you left when you were a teenager, did you go directly to the United States then? No, no. There were difficult kind of, there was a attempt to run a democratic country, but the Soviets obviously had their designs and Czechoslovakia was the last one of in that part of Europe to be taken over fully by the communists. So they changed everything. So when I had a chance to get out, ended up in Germany. So before, after actually being led like a puppy, just, uh, it was a gesture from a couple guys I did not know, but whom my father had met in Germany in a refugee camp. And they were willing to take me. They didn't want to take any women and ended up crossing into Bavaria and spent a year or so in Bavaria waiting for what would be coming next in our lives. Did you go with your family or by My yourself? My father fled immediately after the communist takeover. So he was gone for a year, and so we had pretty tough time, uh, police interrogating us all the mm -hmm. time. And, and in school it began to show, you know, like a communist teacher in physics, actually, and she was fond of calling me a reactionary chicken. Really? And, you know, her husband was a prominent, prominent Communist Party official in the district. So there was really no future because I had no, no likelihood of further education in a country that valued education. And so after getting into Germany, the question was where and then, kind of like a paradise, the gate to paradise opened when Truman's policies concluded to include many immigrants from Europe, from the part of Europe that was actually restricted in 1924, allowing them to come in. And so in 1948, after the communist takeover, about 15,000 of these, maybe 150,000 Czechs fleeing during that year or two ended up ending up in Germany were suddenly qualified or acceptable to the United States for immigration. Up to that point in time, we had no idea would we end up in Australia chasing some snakes or in Canada chopping down lumber somewhere in Quebec. And really, there was Ethiopia, maybe Chile, all these possibilities, but it was ultimately the United States, which is what we desired. So we were, in 1950, after some months of waiting and procedural matters, succeeded in boarding a ship, USS General Hahn, H-A-A-N, and taken to New Orleans with about 1,300 other refugees. And I was struck by this multifaceted passenger list. And there seemed to be, I discovered post facto, a number of Holocaust survivors, 
we ended up in New Orleans, and so I have sort of a fond spot for that city on the Mississippi where I stepped on American soil for the first time. How old were you then? Well, I was 16, so that's medieval history. (laughs) Not so medieval. And then when you were 16, you, I'm sure, went to high school in the United States. Well, I had to finish high school, and it was not the happiest time for me, you know, no chance at that time that my mother and sister would get out like the men that took me across didn't wish to take any women I didn't understand why but they were obviously in the end agents of kind of a a loosely connected agents to American military intelligence and so I was just a puppy taken along for the hike and High school, I was fortunate that I ended up in what was then probably about as good a high school in the country, Miami Senior High, and I was accepted fairly graciously, and there were helpful people assisting me in the sponsors who had to guarantee that my father and I would not be burdened on the government they had to pay for our trip from New Orleans and all that. They they were very kind, very fortunate in that through all these efforts, they helped me. Second month after arrival, I was just a, kind of a helper in a YMCA camp for a month. So with an English dictionary and isolation, no one to speak. And you didn't speak English when you got there. I didn't speak English. Few words. I Mm -hmm. tried to learn a little bit. You know, it was a tough lesson, but they were very useful. Learning quickly the nuances of the language. For example, if I may be permitted one anecdote, the boys were about 8 to 12 or so, and I remember one was calling another buster, (laughs) but I thought he said something else. I was going to chastise him, and all these little boys clinging to me tried to explain the difference between Buster and the other word I was trying to sort of uh, punish. (laughs) So there was fun memories, and then I was assisted by a kind family in Miami. They provided me with a year's scholarship at the University of Miami, and Always working, I delivered newspapers at 4 o'clock in the morning and on and on. And summer work in like Ford Motor Company in Cleveland, Ohio, summertime trying to make money. So I finally made it through and got scholarships. And And you've done quite well. Well, reasonably well. Maybe my students might have thought towards the end that my time had come and gone, (laughs) but... uh, I enjoyed my experiences and sought to promote, you know, desire for international education and taking students to what used to be the Soviet Union that you are familiar with. Mm -hmm. I was intrigued by the title of your class, The Soviet Empire Died Laughing. Well, political humor has always been a very important way. It's On the one hand, it is a very subversive form of activity, and it seemed to reflect the idea that the people generally recognized that they lived in a crazy world, 
they had a word for it. They lived in absurdistan, <laughs> that in a total absurdity, you know, being told that you are in a communist paradise and they look around and there's a line waiting for some vegetables, as you mm-hmm. told me, for example. So, so they tended to analyze and interpret their daily experiences to bigger things in these humorous terms, like political humor. There was a declared contest in the Soviet Union that there would be a national contest, and the winning prize would be 15 years. <laughs> and some questions were bigger. There, for example, they were making fun of all these promises they are reaching for the ultimate communism. It's improving. We are in sort of advanced socialist state. Next time, uh, next stage will be this, and we will be there within so many years. Most people say, eh. And so there was a story told about the Soviet train of communism stops to a halt, and it happened to stop under Stalin. So he orders the crew shot, and train doesn't move. Then Khrushchev, the reformer, rehabilitates the crew, but still train doesn't move. <laughs> They're still dead. <laughs> Brezhnev comes in, and Brezhnev said, what now? Well, let's pull the curtains down in the car, and let's pretend the train is moving. And then comes Gorbachev. Train comes to a halt, and he steps out of the car and looks. Where are the tracks? No, no tracks. So, you know, that's one I, I could torture you with many, <laughs> many more. Oh, I think it would have been a fascinating class to have been in. And the Czechs, for example, had just the one that comes to mind, there was a famous slogan that they all repeated uh, robotically with Soviet Union for all eternity. And the Czechs modified it with Soviet Union for all eternity and not one day longer. <laughs> like waiting lines, there was one simple guy is walking down the street in Bucharest, Romania, and the shoe comes untied, so he bends down to start tying his shoelace and looks up, and there's a long line behind him. He said, come on, people, what are you doing? And I'm just tying my shoelace. He said, so move on. He says, and what? Lose our place in line? <laughs> so they had a way of coping with just everything. Humor does a lot. Yeah. Now, you're currently teaching a class regarding the democracy being under siege in Eastern Europe. Well, what happened was in 1989, of course, there was kind of a romantic anticipation that with this weight of communism being lifted would somehow allow all kinds of positive forces to blossom and democracy will find its way. In Czechoslovakia, that kind of hope may have been somewhat warranted because it was the only country in that part of Europe that was functioning a little bit like a true democracy between World War One and World War Two, but elsewhere they were all dictatorships, authoritarian systems, Hungary, Poland, Yugoslavia, you name it. Even knowledgeable scholars said, well, in five years this will happen, ten years it, th- that will happen. 
But uh, the fact is that democracy is finding it tough going. And one of the most pronounced places for this retrogressive development is Hungary. And it is, of course, a good exemplar of bigger picture, which raises questions about what is going to happen. What are the forces that are encouraging this type of behavior, suppression of the press, undercutting the independent judiciary, and you name it, and restoring all kinds of undemocratic leaders in the past to position of honor and prominence in sort of the history of those countries. Anyway, I thought it would be a useful example to analyze and to use uh, addressing actually a much bigger picture uh, affecting really not only that part of Europe, but heavily so in a very disappointing way, but forces that are not in some ways all that different or unique to that part of the world. You can see some hints of that even in our own country. So it just it's a way of probing very important in my view. Being aware. Being aware. Mm -hmm. Not that answers will be infallible. But awareness is a big step. No, I think so. You have had such an incredibly fascinating life. My questions are things that I have come up with, but I know there is so much to your life that I don't even know where to begin to ask. So is there something that I have not asked that you would like to talk about? As I said at the outset, today, this very day, represents the 80th anniversary of my first encounter with World War II. So we have covered eight decades since that time. I'm very fortunate that I'm still here, functioning reasonably well. As are we. I, there's a lot that happened that I wish we, we could discuss in greater detail. Hopefully you will continue your involvement with Ali. I'm sure the response of the members of Ali is quite interesting to the classes and the material that you present. Well, thank you. Thank you. I hope so. Actually, I began a sort of involvement with Ali long before it became Ali. It was Emeritus College. Yes. But before that, they were called mini-courses. Oh. So I conducted several mini-courses, certainly 30 years ago. And in fact, that program about the political humor was actually initially for a dinner function at which I gave my presentation. Oh, let's do that again. And, and, <laughs> it includes and dinner, I just too. Recently, I found my notes for that. And one person was actually sitting at that presentation. It was he who suggested that I do it again in an updated form. So, you know, it goes back decades. And I hope to be able to help in some ways, constructive ways, in any way possible. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you, and I wish we had a series going on because I think I could talk to you for hours and hours. You're a very interesting person, and I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Thank you very much. I appreciated the opportunity as well. This has been Susan Sukak, 
having had the absolute pleasure of speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Mulan Ravan. Thanks so much for listening.